Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies. Thank you for joining me today. I'm very excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Chani Ha from Stanford University. The Allure of Empire, American Encounters with Asians in the Age of Trans-Pacific Expansion and Exclusion, written by Chris Ha and published by Oxford University Press in 2023, traces how American ideas about race in the Pacific were made and remade on the imperial stage before World War II. Following the Russo-Japanese War, the United States cultivated an amicable relationship with Japan based on the belief that it was a progressive empire akin to its own. Even as the two nations competed for influence in Asia and clashed over immigration issues in the American West, the mutual respect for empire sustained their trans-Pacific cooperation until Pearl Harbor, when both sides disavowed their history of collaboration and cast each other as incompatible enemies. In recovering this lost history, the author reveals the surprising extent to which debates about Korea shaped the politics of interracial cooperation. American recognition of Japan as a suitable partner depended in part on a positive assessment of its colonial rule of Korea. It was not until news of Japan's violent suppression of Koreans soured this perception that the exclusion of Japanese immigrants became possible in the United States. Central to these shifts in opinion was the cooperation of the various elites, uh, Asian elites aspiring to inclusion in a progressive American empire. By examining how Korean, Japanese, and other non-white groups appeal to the United States, this monograph demonstrates that the imperial order sustains itself through a particular form of interracial collaboration that did not disturb the existing racial hierarchy. So over the course of our conversation today, 
we will take a closer look at this critical work and examine how it sets out to be it sets out to make a significant historical contribution to how we understand the intertwined history of U.S. empire building in the Pacific and the U.S. exclusion of Asian American Asian immigrants. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. Today, we are privileged to talk with Professor Krista, the author of *The Allure of Empire: American Encounters with Asians in the Age of Trans-Pacific Expansion and Exclusion*. Professor Krista is an assistant professor in the Department of History at Emory University, where he teaches on the subjects of U.S. in the World, Asian American History and competitive studies in race and ethnicity. As a historian of race, ethnicity, and inequality, Professor Sa recently published a book, The Allure of Empire with Oxford University Press, which we are going to discuss today. His contributions to the field are significant and deserving of recognition, including his 2019 article, America's Gunpowder Woman, Pearl S. Buck, and the Struggle for American Feminism, from 1937 to 1941. This article received both the Dorothy Ross Prize from Society for U.S. Intellectual History and W. Trentin Jackson Article Prize from the Pacific Coast branch of the American Historical Association. Over the past four years, Professor Saw has been recognized for his outstanding research, teaching, and service at Emory University and beyond. So welcome Dr. Saw or Professor Saw to New Books in Asian American Studies and thank you so much for taking the time today uh, to talk about your book. Thank you so much, uh, Byung-ho and Chani. Uh, it's really great to be here today. Thank you. Um, I would like to begin by saying congratulations, Professor So, for publishing this groundbreaking work. Um, this book is just hot off the press, and our listeners will be able to have access to this book right away. And I believe that um, this is your first uh, single author book. Um, just by looking at the cover, uh, we are drawn you know, to these 14 figures, um, and right in the middle of them, dressed in a white Korean-style overcoat, we see Yunchio, whom I guess we'll talk more about in our conversation later. But what got me fascinated about um, your book was the title, The Allure of Empire. Um, so just right off the bat, would you like to say something regards to how or why you choose you chose this title? And if you would like, please feel free to say something about the picture on the cover as well. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And I'm glad that uh, the, both the cover and the title had that effect on you because that was the goal. So I provocatively chose this title called The Allure Empire uh, because I really hope that this book will get readers to think about what I think is a very large, uh, important question in human history that maybe doesn't get asked as often as it should, which is why did it take so long for empires and imperial world order to collapse? And why did decolonization around the world take so long to arrive? Um, and I think most of us, you know, probably in 2023, agree that empires are bad. And in fact, they're not alluring because empires are agents of violence, suppression, dispossession, exclusion. And in fact, uh, you know, if you know your literature on empires, whether it be on the Pacific or the Atlantic elsewhere, there's a lot of books on 
anti-imperial, anti-colonial movements. So my question when I was working on this project was that, okay, so if there's so many anti-colonial, anti-imperial movements, why did the empires die? Why did the colonization not take place until after World War II? And in researching this book, and then also kind of thinking about this book over a long gestation period that took almost 12 years, I, I felt like I had a different answer than what's usually given. Usually, I think we hear about uh, state violence being one of the, if not the main reason why anti-colonial, anti-imperialist movements failed. And I think that there's a, there's a lot of truth to that. What I wanted to show also, uh, and this does not contradict anything else uh, it, it, that's in existing literature, is that, well, you know, it turns out that empires, if you look at the archives, are, were really, really successful in convincing a wide range of people, and this includes a lot of non-white people, uh, that they could secure their own self-interest within the world of empires rather than outside of it. In other words, there were a lot of people, uh, especially during the early 20th century, when empires are becoming quote unquote progressive, that that's people thought, well, you know, they can uh, use empire and in fact use ideas about empire, ideas about race that emerged out of empire for their own benefit. So just to give some examples, you have uh, people in places like Korea who are fighting to reclaim their own national sovereignty, by, but by appealing to US empire, um, they're actually drawing ideas from the US empire. Um, there are Japanese American immigrants in the American West who are also drawing uh, ideas from not just US empire, but also Japanese empire to think about how can they uh, become part of the United States uh, as um, citizens and maybe even landowners. And then there are people who are um, attracted to Japanese empire uh, at the turn of 20th century and beyond precisely because it's a non-white empire that seems to be, uh, uh, you know, kind of challenging this idea of white supremacy around the world. So, so this is actually how I got to this question about um, empires and, and my book addresses question about empires of lore, not just from the perspective of imperialists, but also anti-colonialists, uh, as well as anti-imperialists, and, and I'll go through some of them later in the interview. Um, as well as a lot of people who are deeply ambivalent about empire and at, at different points they were against empire, but then sometimes they, at other points in their life, they embrace empire. And this is exactly why I chose Yun Shiho uh, to be at the center of the you know, uh, cover, but also the book. Because Yun Shiho is actually a very well-known figure uh, in Korean history. And usually he's taught for two things. One is that in the late 19th century, he was a Korea, uh, Korean nationalist who was very, uh, um, in a lot of ways, I mean, he was anti-imperial. He, he, he advocated for creating um, an independent Korea that would break away from um, China's uh, influence. Uh, and then later in his life during World War II, he is actually pro-empire. He, he actually aligns with Japanese imperialists. And the, the photo is taken right in the middle of that in 1926. Uh, so the photo actually is from Emory Alumni Magazine. And she went to Emory and, and, and by great coincidence, I got a job at Emory and I got to work, look at his papers very, very closely. Uh, and the photograph is taken in Seoul during the Japanese colonial period. And it's actually a photo of him alongside uh, various uh, alumni of Emory College and Emory uh, Medical School at the time. And um, what is interesting about this photo to me, there are a couple of things. One is that you kind of see Yun Chiyo smiling uh, in, the, in the dead center. 
And if you have read his writings about Americans and missionaries, you know that he's a very good politician in some ways, because he's very critical of missionaries. He is very, very bitter about white supremacy. And yet he was always good at, you know, presenting himself as this very, uh, um, I don't know, good collaborator with Missionary Network. At the same time, you also see this in this picture of what can, I think I would consider an interracial collaboration. So you have some white alumni, but also you, there are a couple of Korean alumni as well um, who are showing this uh, moment where um, they are genuinely thinking about uh, interracial relationship within the world of empires as something that is peaceful and cordial. I mean, this is a photo taken literally during the colonial period. You probably wouldn't get that sense from just looking at their people's expressions. That being said, there is this little child at the, at the bottom of the photo, and I can only conjecture why he's so unhappy to be there. I mean, well, it's possible that he's just unhappy because he's a kid and he's forced to show up at what is definitely a meeting for adults. On the other hand, it's also possible that he, unlike the adults, you know, have sort of discomfort about, I don't know, holding hands with two, two Asian males uh, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a white American person, probably from the South. In fact, the, his, I, I was able to check that his, his parents are actually uh, Korean missionaries who are there for the student volunteer movement. And this, this is actually their house. Um, and so there are a lot of you know, things that you know, are uncertain. And it's only when you, I don't know, dig deeper under the surface that you get this fuller picture. So that's why I chose this cover. Uh, so that's, that's, that's my long exposition in terms of uh, the title of the cover, but I hope that that also sets up the, um, uh, our conversation pretty well in terms of what kind of things I'm interested in talking about. Thank you. Um, I personally love the cover um, of the book as it shows your book gives them equal attention to each historical actor. Um, so Professor Sa, um, we would be delighted to continue our conversation today by getting to know you more. Um, could you tell us about your background, um, perhaps where you grew up, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your specific field of study? And we would appreciate hearing more about your influential interlocutors um, who have um, significantly contributed to shaping your academic journey. Sure. Um, and, and I think I have, and, and you know, um, I have a feeling that, you know, once people hear my biographical background, uh, readers will understand why I wrote the book the way I did. So I grew up in, I was born and raised in South Korea until seventh grade. And I moved to the United States, uh, of all places, uh, to the suburbs of Baltimore, Maryland. And that experience uh, growing up in Baltimore, Maryland, um, during the early 2000s, during the W. Bush era, uh, deeply shaped the way I think about race. And I, I think that, um, you know, this was why I was so drawn to fi uh, figures like Yun Shiho and others, because the experience of growing up in Baltimore is, in my opinion, really different from, for example, growing up in places like Berkeley or Los Angeles or even Boston or New York. Um, racism is very explicit. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this interesting irony where, in my experience and Yun Shiho's experience as well, some of the people who are kindest to Asian students are some of the most racist people who are very anti-Black. Um, and obviously there is this dimension about a minority too, but there's also something else, which I think is about uh, ideas about 
proper behavior and what they think that Asian cultures are more compatible with, let's say, and this is where Christianity comes in too. I went to a Jesuit school um, and I, they, they, they felt that I fit in really well. And some of the people that I found to be a very racist and, and it were actually some of the people who were hardcore liberals and, and their form of racism was very different from mm. what, uh, for example, the right-wing um, conservative racists would say. And that's actually my foray into kind of thinking about what I, I will just call, you know, a progressive form of racism that I describe in the book. Um, and, and it is, an, I think, an earlier iteration of liberal racism. And when I went to college at Brown uh, in the mid 2000s, um, so I re- was really interested in studying race. Um, and I actually did not focus on Asian American studies uh, because, well, growing in Baltimore, I didn't think that was actually the most important thing. I thought the most important thing was African American history. Uh, and then I spent a lot of time um, reading, taking purposely taking classes, they were focused on race. And because this was the 2000s after 9-11, there was there were a lot of really great works in American studies that were focusing on uh, what is what can be considered like cultures of US imperialism. So I was very heavily influenced by, I can't call it a school, uh, um, really mostly associated American studies of the 2000s. Um, and I'll, you know, to give some names, you know, Matthew Fry Jacobson, um, you know, Amy Kaplan, Jackson Lears, and then Shelley Fisher Fishkin, uh, who later I ended up working with at Stanford. Um, I was reading a lot of these works and I went to, I applied to grad school really thinking I was going to write about um, um, African-Americans ideas about race and how their engagement with Asia uh, and Asian Americans was going to change things. Uh, but then when I went to grad school at Stanford, things really changed. And in some ways I continued this line of thinking and you can kind of see that in the book. Um, and, 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 you know, so, you know, when I took classes with um, Alison Hobbs was then working on this amazing book on passing. Uh, I also was work, uh, taking class with Bon Von Raspberry, who uh, was working on this, another amazing book on uh, African-American literature, Jim Crow. And of course, as I mentioned, Shelley Fisher Fishkin, who is one of the founders of the field of transnational American studies, uh, really gave me opportunities to read a lot of this work. But this is why like teachers really matter too, in that I, 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 I up working with, two people who now it makes sense that I work with them, but at the time there was no, this was not a foregone conclusion that I would. So I worked with uh, Yumi Moon, who was working, who's a political historian, social historian, working on colonial Korea and especially colonial uh, collaborators in Korea. Uh, and of course uh, my advisor, Gordon Chang, who in some ways like me actually didn't start out as an Asian American as he started out as a diplomatic historian. He started out as US East Asia relations and TAing for his Asian American history class was an extremely transformative experience for me because it was there I realized that I could actually enter into Asian American studies from the perspective of US East Asia relations and also from the larger perspective of studying race. And so that's how I actually ended up in this, uh, in, in, in this business. And I'll say one more thing about how, you know, interested interlocutors and my teachers, which is that um, I, I briefly mentioned that I was very influenced by the cultures of American imperialism school. And if you look at this book, there's some of that, but a lot of it is actually straight up political history. And there's actually a reason for that. And, and, and that's because I think I, over the course of working with uh, Gordon and, and, and Professor Yumi Moon, um, I started thinking more carefully about, well, actually, you know, big P politics really matter. And it's not just for the 
dead white males. Uh, it's not just dead white male history. Um, and, and a person who was a very big interlocutor, and I think people are surprised, and I think even he's really surprised to hear this, is Jack Rakoff, who is, uh, who is a historian of early America. Uh, I read more books on Continental Congress <laughs> with him than, than, than anything else. And that experience actually did shape the way I think about politics. So there's a lot of stuff in this book that does deal with high politics in Washington, D.C., in the White House, in Congress, in the Supreme Court, uh, and because it was only then I realized that I could understand much more fully why Asian immigrants and Asian intellectuals, Asian diplomats were experiencing what they did during this period. So that's sort of the trajectory of my uh, thinking, um, you know, um, as a development, uh, in terms of developing as a scholar. Yeah. Well, Thank you, Professor Saw, for this opportunity to get to know you better. I think we can appreciate better, you know, what this book represents now as we got to know um, the author himself better. So thank you uh, for this. And I would also like to invite you to tell us more about how you came to write this incredible work, um, The Lure of Empire. Um, you know, how did this journey begin, you know, and what led you to write this book? And if I may kind of squeeze in another mini kind of question here, and an important one for historians is that, you know, would you like to highlight some of the archives and resources you turn to, you know, for your research? I'm sure our listeners would love to hear some of that as well. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, it's hard to say when I when I started this book, right? But I can definitely tell you that the, the seeds were planted when I uh, first encountered the diaries of Yuchiho, and um, it came by complete accident. I spent uh, a summer, uh, uh, the summer between undergrad and grad school um, in Korea, and then my original idea was actually to kind of take a break from work um, and maybe just explore. Korea and learn more about Korean history. You know, I mean, I'm primarily an Americanist, so I didn't know much. And I was actually reading this book of essays that had a very short section on Yun Shi Ho that mentioned that he, um, and, and that this one actually was focused on something completely different, that he was actually married to a Chinese woman. Um, and that's very unusual for his period. And then I learned that, well, he got to meet this Chinese woman through the missionary network and that Yun Shiho had studied at Vanderbilt and at Emory. Um, and as somebody who had lived in the United States and as somebody who, as I said, grew up in Baltimore, uh, immediately went like, okay, so his experience must have had uh, some dimension of thinking about race, that he couldn't just be afford to be an international student who goes to the US and just studies theology, which is what he did. So um, it, I followed the footnotes on this and turned out, uh, you know, um, the, 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 uh, the, I think, well, I'm actually going to have to look up my notes, how they, how they actually, so it's, in Korean, it's Koksa Pinchan Vyone, but in English, they say it's National Institute for Korean History. And they had published um, a version of his extensive, extensive diary, which spans from, you know, from the 1880s all the way through 1945, uh, 43, actually, he dies in 1945. Um, and, you know, I went to a library, it turns out, and, and, you know, I was reading it, and then somebody told me that it's also online. So I was reading it online, uh, and, 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 and I think all the Koreanists know this, but the, this um, incredible uh, government agency has digitized so many sources, especially for the colonial period and, and pre-colonial period. Um, and, you know, I spent a lot of time just reading it. And, and the more I read it, the more I became fascinated that not only by him, but also the world that he lived in. So, um, 
a lot of things at the time didn't make sense to me why he, for example, had such strong opinions about uh, uh, certain kinds of African-Americans, certain kinds of Koreans. So for example, he, uh, and I'll talk about this when we get to chapter three, but he was a big fan of Booker T. Washington, which uh, came out of nowhere to me. Uh, but then the more I read about him, the more I read about the Missionary Network, the more I read about, read about racial politics in the South, especially of the 1890s, the 1900s, 1910s, it made sense to me. So that's how I came to start this uh, and, and the starting points. And then when I was in grad school, um, I had a chance to write it. You know, this is a short seminar paper. And I, uh, I was one of these students who, um, after coursework, kind of left Palo Alto. And I was living with my college friends in, in, in Oakland, Berkeley, which gave me a great opportunity to just go to the Bancroft Library every week. And there, there were just so many archives of California politicians who were very, very, very active in anti-immigration movements, as well as um, archives of people who are, uh, who are considered experts of Asia at the time. So professors uh, at Berkeley, as well as some missionaries, uh, some of the people um, who in some ways just had a lot of interest uh, in, in Asia. Um, and of course, uh, Stanford also had, because of its own relationship with, in particular, Japan, thanks to David Star Jordan, uh, had a, a really rich material on this. Um, and I did get to visit, actually, um, Emory uh, Library to look at the originals. And in fact, that's how I found the, the photograph uh, of, that's on the cover when I was in graduate school. Um, and then after I got this job, um, I did get to go through the original diaries. And, and I have to say 99% of the, 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 the version that's available online is correct, but um, there are a couple others that are different. And I've tried to kind of exp try to understand why and, and why it was important to kind of look at the original. Um, so that's actually where I would say, you know, so there's the archives in Korea, but also archives in California. And as well as, and I did sort of the more standard things. I looked at also the congressional record. I, I looked at Fruz, but I also went to Live Congress, National Archives, uh, and, and, and made some short visits to uh, various, since both of you are studying religion, theological seminaries, uh, where they had papers of missionaries. Um, they were very, very helpful. Um, so that's, that's, that's the, the story of how I built the archive and how, very interestingly enough, I ended up getting a job at Emory. Uh, and, and I often joke that um, the ghost of Yun Shiho led me here uh, for a reason. Um, and I, nobody could have seen when I, when I first entered grad school that I would be working on this topic or uh, teaching here. So, yeah. Um, honestly, I was in awe of how expensive resources and archives were when I read your book. And it's really amazing to hear about some of them. Um, now let's dive into the book itself um, to give our readers a sense of the structure. Um, the book consists of six chapters in addition to an intro and epilogue. Um, the sections follow for the most part a chronological order and center around several key episodes that as you describe quote-unquote, crisscross the Pacific. Um, I particularly appreciate how in your introduction, you begin with an um, exploration of the dual definition of race. Um, you cite W.E.B. Du Bois in 1905 as he revisits his declaration from 1903. Um, that's that, quote, the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, end quotes. 
Um, as Dubois witnessed the Russo-Japanese War and drew connections to black and white struggles in the United States, he saw a glimpse of hope that Japan's victory could be a showcase to demonstrate a revolution of quote-unquote darker races against white supremacy around the world. Um, however, for Yun Shiho, who also faced Japanese colonial power in Korea, as he argue, um, the definition of race must go beyond the white, non-white binary and toward question of power. Um, would you be able to unpack this dual definition of race and its relevance to the late empires of the United States and Japan in the Pacific world? Um, also, as the chapter progresses, um, this dual understanding of race seems to shift or evolve. Um, so could you elaborate on the role of this unstable category of race in your book? Yeah, thank you so much for that uh, question um, because it actually gets to the heart of the, my methodology or, or my approach because um, I, I, so I, I rewrote the introduction without exaggeration nine or 10 times. And by rewrite, not revise, I actually completely rewrote them uh, because um, I really wanted this book not to be just a book that fills in a gap in our knowledge, but to be a lot more ambitious and say, all right, can we go one step beyond where we are right now in terms of thinking about race? Because the way we think about race is usually basically the way that Du Bois has, art has articulated. Uh, that, that being you know, what he calls the problem of the color line, the issues of white supremacy and the ways in which that's, uh, global inequality uh, has been inscribed by this binary of white over non-white. And that's actually why he's so excited when he encounters this news of Japan taking on Russia. Um, um, and he really hopes that Japan will win because this means that for the first time in centuries, it says like a non-white, and he uses the word race, non-white race has demonstrated that white supremacy is actually a myth. Um, and, and, and you actually, and, and he's not the only person who feels it. There are a lot of Pan-Asianists at this time, um, even in Korea, who feel this. But I wanted to also use Yun Chi-ho's views to kind of um, complicate this view without dismissing it. And Yun Chi-ho's a really great person to kind of put in here right next to Du Bois, in my opinion, because, because Yun Chi-ho was educating the American South, he knows what the color line is. So he knows that it's valid especially in the South. But anybody who has, in his opinion, has experienced expansion of Japanese empire, and that goes you know, way before the Russo-Japanese, the Sino-Japanese war, um, and, and, and you know, other, other wars that Japan had fought, uh, and, and its colonization of uh, various parts of Asia at this time, he thinks that, well, you know, it's, the hierarchy isn't exactly just white over non-white. It's also uh, imperial over non-imperial or imperial over colonial. And, and during his lifetime, a term that was very widely used by academics and politicians was uh, subject racist. We don't use this term anymore. And by subject race, they are, you know, uh, they are you know, referencing mostly non-white people, but they're more specifically talking about people who do not have, have don't have sovereign rights, uh, people who are colonized or people who whose sovereignty has been, have been uh, uh, compromised by expansion of an imperial power. So if we use that to finish a race, uh, it's not 
that Japan is white, right? So, so in other words, he's not saying that, okay, so Japan's an empire there and, and it has become part of this league of empires uh, that includes the United States and Britain and France and Germany. Does it mean Japan's become white? He's like, no, that's not, that's not what has happened. What has happened is that Japan has learned how to be the kind of empire that um, demonstrates that, well, non-white people have the capacity to be imperial as well. Um, and, and if you look at human history, this is not that surprising. I mean, you know, China was an, was an empire. I mean, still was an empire at the time, albeit a declining empire. Um, so he is basically outlining the fact that if you want to think about race, in the Pacific, you can't just use call it the color line. You have to use color line as well as what I have named as imperial paradigm of race. Uh, so this dichotomy of imperial over, over colonized and the emergence of Japan uh, as an imperial power and more specifically an imperial power that is seen as better than some of the white powers, including Russia and, and Belgium is a really big one. Um, that, that matters a lot in terms of uh, challenging white, uh, white, white supremacy, but not in the way that Du Bois has thought about it, because Du Bois is uh, not really, at least at this moment in 1905, thinking about Japan as an imperial power. They're really thinking about Japan as a, he, he's really thinking about Japan as a challenger to, um, to, uh, to white supremacy. This changes over time. And as you, as you, as you very astutely you know, ask, like, how does it change over time? Um, by the time we get to the end of the book, by the time we get to World War II, um, actually, white supremacy does, does kind of reign supreme in some ways, because, well, Japan is no longer seen as an empire that's as progressive, as good as the American, you know, American empire, and, uh, you know, so much, and, and John Dower's book, War Without Mercy, which is older than all three of us, I don't, I don't want to presume your age, but you're probably younger than me, but it's even older than I am. But that book still has staying power precisely because John Darrow was so good at uh, identifying the ways in which that, you know, the color line operated during World War II. But we can't just draw a straight line from Russo-Japanese War to World War II. That's actually what I'm doing with this book. Um, and, and it takes a really long time to get there. And it also takes a really long time to get to decolonization in the Pacific. Um, and that's that's uh, the, the the role of the of this dual um, definition of race. That's um, that's you know that's that's really operating uh, at different levels in this book. Yeah. Thank you for providing this fascinating insights on this important framework. Um, now delving into the first chapter. Um, in this chapter, we learn how Japan arose as a possible member of quote unquote the family of Greek civilized nation on the global stage during the Russo-Japanese War, and how the U.S. quickly viewed Japan as an imperial partner. Um, although the U.S. policymakers acknowledged the failed promise of Japan's reform and the risk of violence and exploitation in the process of Japanese expansion in Korea, they chose to believe in the quote-unquote civilizing power of a progressive empire by juxtaposing the Japan-Korea relationship with the U.S.-Cuba and U.S.-Philippines relationship. Um, observing the prioritized emphasis on quote-unquote reform in the building of empires, I would like to learn more about how this U.S. progressive era's conception of progress connects to U.S. imperialism. Um, further, I'm interested in how these ideas of progress run against limits when taken to a um, Pacific context. Thank you. Um, 
one of the key um, arguments that I, I, I make in the book that, that is uh, probably most explicitly articulated in chapter one, but it's all it, throughout the book, is that one of the main reasons why the United States uh, treats Japan as a partner, not a threat, is not just that Japan is important economically, it's not just that Japan actually is a military power that is in some ways taking care of business for the United States by defeating Russia. It's also because Japanese imperialism seems to resemble, at least in the eyes of many American policymakers and diplomats and missionaries and academics, resemble uh, American imperialism. And during the Russo-Japanese War, um, American imperialism is in a very interesting stage. So it's already been several years since the United States has defeated the Spanish empire and annexed the Philippines uh, and, and taken uh, Cuba as well. And there's actually a lot of um, question about what exactly is next for the United States, right? Okay, now that they've taken this colony and People like Theodore Roosevelt, of course, are like, well, you know, this is our pathway to becoming a great power, uh, just like Britain. And what's interesting is that um, you also have people like William Jennings Bryan, who is usually known, I feel like, as the great commoner populist candidates who loses uh, his presidential bid three times, uh, three time failed um, uh, politician. But he's, he, he actually runs uh, for president the second time on an anti-imperialist platform. He basically says, okay, the United States actually needs to uh, let go of the Philippines. You can't hold on to the Philippines. And one of the key arguments that he, the reasons why he says that is that he thinks that the violence uh, that the United States is perpetrating in the Philippines is actually unbecoming of, of American democracy. And, and a lot of people agree with him uh, at this time. But by the time we get to the Russo-Japanese War, something else has happened, which is that um, although the Philippines is kind of unpopular in the American imagination, Cuba has emerged actually as like a model uh, of like how to properly uh, handle sort of Im imperial politics. Now, this sounds, this is actually self-serving. If you have to ask any Cubans at this time, you know, with the exception of very few elites, they're going to say, no, this is still, you know, uh, terrible uh, exploitation, dispossession, right? Undermining of sovereignty. But Cuba at the time is a protectorate. Um, and even people like William Jennings Bryan are incredibly enthusiastic about the ways that the United States has, for example, built roads, uh, built schools, built hospitals, um, you know, sort of uh, changed uh, the electoral system. Um, and in, in other words, kind of reform Cuba the way that you would reform New York City. And in fact, this is exactly what a lot of the reformers, really famous reformers of the progressive era say that is good about US empire. So Brian actually changes his idea uh, by the time he gets to the Russo-Japanese war by saying, okay, why don't, why don't we do to Philippines what we have done for Cuba? And this is actually a line of thinking that is very dominant in um, American politics circa 1904, 1905. This is all really important to understand why the United States is so excited for Japan to declare protectorate over Korea. Japan does not colonize Korea immediately. It doesn't happen for another five years. During the protectorate period, uh, 
the emperor is still um, still, you know, uh, there to kind of maintain in some ways a sense of, you know, uh, sovereignty, Korean sovereignty, but also a lot of the work that Japan is supposed to be doing is actually um, sending advisors to reform uh, the so-called, you know, quote-unquote reform, let's say the, the, the political system, financial system, education system, and the number of people who are excited that Japan is doing to Korea what um, the United States is up to Cuba is, is really extensive. And this is exactly what people mean by progressive imperialism. And, and I'll give sort of two examples of what they don't, they think is not progressive imperialism. And I mentioned very briefly. So during this time, King Leopold II, the Belgian King uh, is notorious for, you know, doing horrible, horrible things in, in Congo uh, and, and the way that well, you know, it's just straight up violence and exploitation. There's no reform in the way that you will see, let's say in Cuba or, you know, Philippines or Korea. So automatically already, Japan's supposed to be better empire than Belgians. And the second one, and this is more relevant to the book is just that, you know, Russian empire uh, has this um, really violent history of um, uh, anti-Semitic pogroms. So, um, a lot of American politicians are actually thinking that, well, Russia is white, Belgians are white, but they're actually not very progressive. So they want to see that Japan uh, be more like Americans and the British than the Russians and the Belgians. But as you pointed out, you know, Chani, um, Japan actually doesn't do very well in terms of actually reforming Korea. Now, if you have read, for example, uh, you know, historiography of Japanese imperialism, they say, well, it's because, uh, for example, Peter Deuce is most famous for saying this, that Japan really tried hard to find the right Korean collaborators. And when that failed, they had to colonize. You know, uh, Koreanists would probably you know, say the complete opposite, that Japan actually never intended to reform Korea and that this was all just a front. Uh, that protective period was just a front uh, and a prelude to colonization. Whichever interpretation that you agree with, what is important is that um, things are not going smoothly at all in Korea. And there's a lot of questions, especially in the missionary community, about is Japan actually progressive as, as they say they are, as Japan Japanese say they are? Is Japan as progressive as Theodore Roosevelt say it is? Um, so there are a lot of questions. And even though there are questions uh, the, the highest ranking members of U.S. government say, all right, let's just wait and see. That's, that's their approach because, as I said earlier, the United States had a lot of trouble in the Philippines um, and, and, and they're still thinking about how to make the Philippines more like Cuba. And maybe you know, Japan also needs just needs more time. And that's something that also kind of sets the stage for all the drama that will happen later in, for example, 1919 when anti-colonial movements take place and, and how um, U.S. thinking about Japanese empire does change actually in the 1920s quite a bit. So um, that's, that's where I'll stop for now about um, that question about uh, comparative colonization and very briefly about this issue of progressivism and imperialism. And I gesture that in places like Cuba, um, people were excited, and by people, Americans were excited that uh, basically uh, the U.S. imperialists were reforming Cuba the same way they're reforming New York City. Um, and in some ways, it's a, it's a model of exporting what's, you know, what's uh, you know, being done domestically. But in another sense, it's actually just thinking about um, how to remake the world, uh, because this is a period where um, imperialism is forced to uh, 
modify itself or reform itself. So imperialism had existed for centuries, but before the progressive era from the 1890s to 1920-ish. But during the progressive era, imperialism can't continue on the way that it used to because so many people are asking questions about like, what exactly is the role of the state? And it it is the role of the state to um, protect uh, the, the, the rights of, let's say, the workers, the women and children. And the way they the progressive rationalize imperialism is that, well, as long as our imperial uh, enterprise is providing this to the people who are colonized and subjugated, well, then it's worth it, that it's better for them too. So this is actually what I kind of try to explain as progressive form of imperialism that I think has a really long reach. So it, it really defines itself against the older forms of just straight up uh, exploitative imperialism. Uh, in terms of historiography, interestingly enough, um, you know, there was a very famous uh, article written in 1952 about the relationship between progressivism and imperialism by William Luchtenberg, who was literally 100 years old. Um, and in the years following, and I'll just give one example, Richard Hofstetter, who wrote you know, the book on the progressive era, you know, just agrees with it and goes on. And, and not many people actually really kind of flesh this out. Um, and, and I would say the scholars who are closest to fleshing it out are the people who focused on, for example, the Philippines and, and look at, so, there's a book called Social Engineering in the Philippines. I'm blanking on the author's name, Paul Kramer on uh, how uh, things changed in terms of uh, political representation. Um, there's also a re- pretty recent book by Alan Lumba on how, um, how the, uh, how the Philippines finance system was, you know, quote unquote reform. Um, so there are all these like, you know, little, uh, not little, but uh, you know, there's, there are books that focus on various aspects of progressivism, but not a book that for example, talks about the larger picture about progressivism and this cons- broader concern about social politics and how it affects imperialist uh, expansion. And I think the closest one that I can think of, not that I'm just thinking and talking out loud here, uh, is, is, is the last chapter. No, it's the penultimate chapter in Thomas Bender's book, A Nation Among Nations. And he was gracious enough to blur my book uh, where he gestures towards it, but it's a, it was a book that, that was a synthesis and, and, and um, it largely kind of agrees also with, uh, you know, people like Hofstadter um, and Luchtenberg. So, um, but, but in terms of like, you know, progressivism and imperialism, and I think it, the, the relationship between the two really highlights and, and, and brings to the focus how limited the vision of progress that people had uh, in the early 20th century. I would even argue to be a little bit more provocative. I think that we still in the 21st century have quite limited vision of progress. Uh, and so in some ways the book is trying to help us think uh, critically about what we define as progress. Um, and, and, and what does it look like for the world and especially for people of color um, uh, in, the, in the United States and in the Pacific. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Self, for that detailed answer. Um, and we'll, we'll continue to think about um, some of the issues that you also brought up. But following the decade of the Russo-Japanese War, we see in Chapter 2 the conflicting views of Americans on Japan depending on their relationship with Japan at home and abroad. Um, the anti-Japanese movement in California promoted exclusionary progressivism, um, perceiving Japanese laborers as a great threat you know, to the future of the white race, while Washington's desire to maintain their imperial partnership with Japan helped them to hold on to the idea of Japan as a member of the quote-unquote great civilized nation. This coexistence of contrasting ideas is interesting in considering the interconnectedness of domestic politics and international relations. So would you be able to tell us more about um, the context of this disjunction between domestic and international politics? Yes. Um, so the chapter two introduces a group of people in the United in the continental United States who are probably most disappointed, if not angry that the United States and Japan are entering into a cordial relationship after Russo-Japanese War. And the group who are most pissed are actually the anti-immigration uh, activists. So I'll just call them nativists for as a, as a shorthand. And there are different kinds of nativists. Uh, one group that I introduce uh, who are mostly tied with the working class organizations in San Francisco, um, and they, they organize around themselves, uh, 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 the Asiatic, it's called the Asiatic Exclusion League. They basically say, listen, we don't care what Japan has achieved. Japan is an Asian country, Japanese people are Asian people. So Japanese people, Japanese immigrants need to be treated the exact same way that the United States treats the Chinese people. Meaning, and this is a time where Chinese exclusion has already uh, taken um taken effect for a while, um, meaning that uh, the United States really needs to step up and, and stop blocking Japanese immigration to the United States. So that's one group of people who are really unhappy about that. The second group of people um, who are mostly, who are actually more influential, who are mostly the white collar professional class, and a lot of them are lawyers, politicians, and journalists. Uh, they're, the tr they're the true progressives of the, the American West. They hate monopoly. They really believe that that um, the big businesses are corrupting politics. Uh, they are genuinely concerned about uh, the working class uh, as well as at least European immigrants. And what they say is that, well, actually, you know, 
Japan, as it has demonstrated by defeating Russia, is different from the rest of Asia. But, but that fact makes Japanese immigrants more dangerous than any other Asian groups because they're not racially inferior to whites. So they have to come up with a different argument to justify uh, their, their argument for anti-Japanese movement, which is that if the United States government, federal government continues to allow Japanese immigrants to come in, come to the United States, um, Japanese immigrants are gonna quickly uh, you know, uh, become powerful, both politically and economically, and they're gonna create a monopoly, especially in the agricultural sector. And this is exactly why the, um, there's a there's tiny bit of uh, present day resonance here. This is exactly why they, uh, the, the California progressives uh, are so focused on land rights, property rights of Japanese Americans, because they're really concerned that uh, Japanese Americans are going to become the biggest landowners, uh, especially in agricultural um, as, uh, areas in California, and which would pr prevent the white working class from achieving their uh, upward social mobility uh, you know, as um, patriarchs, patriarch, you know, people who have patriarchal families all owning land and their houses. So they actually are really unhappy with what the federal government is doing. So the federal government, uh, you know, is committed to ensuring that Japanese immigrants are not gonna be treated like the Chinese. And that's actually what I try to describe um, as the birth of the Gentlemen's Agreement, which a lot of scholars actually tend to say is Japanese exclusion. There, there are some cases to be made in the sense that it is kind of closer to the very first Chinese Restriction Act of 1882, and that the restriction is a product of uh, bilateral agreement between the United States and Japan and the way that it used to be the United States and, 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 and Qing government. Um, but in the 20th century, um, Chinese exclusion is actually a unilateral act um, and, you know, and meaning the United States government can do whatever it wants without consulting the Chinese government's views. And the United States does not want to do that with Japan, especially after Russo-Japanese War. So what they do with the Gentlemen's Agreement is that they entrust the Japanese Foreign Ministry to restrict the out-migration of the working class Japanese to the United States, meaning that as long as these immigrants are not, uh, you know, laborers, um, they are able to come to the United States and they should be presumed admissible when they arrive at the border. Um, that's, that's the federal policy. And there's a lot of conflict between the federal government and the uh, state government. And this is also where William Jennings Bryan comes into a really played an interesting role. So I, I mentioned earlier that Jennings used to be, Jennings Bryan used to be anti-imperialist and then he basically kind of becomes a progressive imperialist. Uh, William Jennings Bryan actually becomes Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson. And one of his first tasks as Secretary of State is to go all the way from Washington, D.C. to Sacramento to try to convince the California government do not pass this Alien Land Act. Um, and he's basically concerned that, listen, like, you know, Japan is a progressive empire and like it's going to really not be good for, you know, the, the interest, national interest in the United States. Um, and, and Bryan actually fails. Um, but, but what is interesting is that because the federal government has made such a big gesture in sending their own secretary of state to California. I mean, and I'll give a counter example that's relevant today. There are a lot of states in the American South right now passing what is essentially Alien Land Act, and you do not see Joe Biden sending and Tony Blinken, right, to DeSantis's, you know, uh, government. That, that's not happening. 
But in 1913, that did happen when Woodrow Wilson was president. So the Japanese government, at least, is like, okay, like at least the federal government, right, is respecting Japan. You know, what's happening in the States? You know, maybe they'll figure it out. And in a timely manner, World War I happens and Japan and the United States are actually entered a war. Uh, Japan enters first. They're on the same side fighting against the Axis, especially against Germany uh, and Ottoman Empire. So um, all this uh, sort of, you know, conflict that happens out of California in some ways represents the fragility of the U.S.-Japan relations, but also the endurance of U.S.-Japan relations as well. So, so one of the things that I want to uh, highlight here is that, well, not all races are the same, right? Some of the progressive imperialists are more interested in having cordial relationship with Japan, but some of the ones who are not that interested in foreign policy, for example, the ones who are most interested in California land politics are like, you know, that's not of our concern. Our concern is actually making sure that the, the land of the lands in California are available for the white working class. Um, and, and we're going to do everything we can to prohibit the most dangerous of the Asians from, from becoming landowners. And that's their argument. So, um, and that's basically what I try to explain uh, in chapter two to also um, show the shift uh, away from this cordial uh, inter-imperial framework uh, that was, that seemed pretty stable during the Russo-Japanese war and becoming slightly more fragile, yeah. Um, thank you for elaborating on the specific U.S. context and discourses around Japanese immigrants that actually help us to have a better understanding about race. Um, so chapter three explores American missionaries' engagement with competitive racialization. Um, I found it interesting how the missionaries were influenced by the American and Japanese imperialists who referred to the colonization of the Philippines to justify the colonization of Korea. They also used the conditions in the American South where racial inequality was sustained through Jim Crow laws as a convenient excuse to deny equal rights to Koreans under colonial rule. According to you, American missionaries in Korea shared the same ideas of quote-unquote race development and they demanded the reform of Japanese colonial rules, for example, less violent, but not the decolonization of Korea. Um, knowing that they are missionaries, um, I'm kind of curious about how their theological understandings also interacted with these ideas of race. Um, would you be able to speak more about their theological beliefs? Yes, um, and that's a that's a great uh, set of questions. And and um, if chapter two was really focusing on, uh, I guess the drama between. Uh, progressive imperialists, mostly on in Washington, and 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 versus, uh, you know, I guess what we call progressive nativists in California. The third chapter really focuses on really missionaries, um, who are also a lot of whom are actually very progressive, and their sort of uneasy relationship with uh, the, those in Washington. So. Um, it is true, and, 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 and I think anybody who has studied colonial period uh, of Korea knows this. It is true that most of most um, significant uh, critique of Japanese colonialism, at least from the U.S. side, often came from the missionary community. And this is especially true um, after 1910. Um, but as I actually show in this um, chapter, the missionaries are in a really interesting um, sort of bind. So on one hand, 
Imperial expansion actually does serve their own purpose of also expanding the boundaries of their own uh, Christian empire. Uh, in other words, um, they are able to have, in some ways, better protection uh, under, um, uh, let's say, I mean, both both U.S. Uh, um, diplomats, but also in a lot of cases, Japanese colonial officials as they conduct their uh, missionary work. On the other hand, um, not all missionaries are the same. Missionaries who serve in Korea have different set of interests than the missionaries who serve in Japan and China and the Philippines. And what I show is that the, the basically the group who's were focused on Korea actually end up um, being overpowered by those who are actually much more influential in Washington. And I use the case study uh, of basically, and I, this is how Yun Chiu comes back to the story, is when he gets incarcerated in 1912, allegedly for plotting to assassinate the Japanese colonial governor at the time, but it really for uh, building and running this Christian school that is supposed to be seen as a training ground for uh, future Korean nationalists. And when he's incarcerated, a lot of American missionaries are very, very alarmed. Uh, they are actually beginning to question whether Japan maybe is opposed to Christian Christianity and missionary work. So, um, and, and Yunshu is certainly not the only person who's incarcerated. There are actually 105 people who have get sentenced, uh, sentenced to jail. And that's how it's usually known in Korean history, Pegwin uh, Sakon. And um, the missionaries actually gathered several times, especially missionary leaders in the United States. Interesting enough, the Southern Methodists uh, tied with Emory University um, are actually the people who are most concerned about the welfare of of Yun Shi Ho. These are people who are anti-Black. They are people who are actually um, also oftentimes condoning lynching in the American South, but they're genuinely concerned that their uh, students, their prized, uh, their favorite, basically Christian convert in Korea is being treated this way by the Japanese. So the Southern Methodists gather with you know, uh, Northern Methodists, Presbyterians, uh, Congregationalists um, in New York, but they also gather actually in Washington DC when the missionary leaders go together to visit the Japanese embassy, the State Department and the White House to basically, uh, you know, sort of articulate their concerns. And what ends up happening is that in that process of trying to figure out what's the next step, like, what do we do? Um, the Southern Methodists basically decide that, okay, we're gonna make sure that Yun Chu doesn't get executed because that's, that's our number one concern. But they actually end up kind of stopping short of going all the way of saying, okay, make sure that he gets exonerated uh, because, um, and this is actually how I use Arthur Tristan Brown, who's a really famous Presbyterian leader uh, uh, um, during this time. There are all these questions about whether American missionaries uh, should really expect Japan to treat a subject race, that's the term that I said was used a lot, a subject race like Koreans, uh, you know, better than how, for example, white Americans treat African-Americans. Um, so, so the northern, northerners are actually the ones who are um, preventing the southerners from going one step farther and trying to help the Koreans out uh, in 1912, 1913. And this is really significant because Usually we think about Christian missionaries who help Koreans, they're the ones who are like anti-imperial, anti-colonial, maybe even anti-racist. 
but it's actually the most racist people who are coming to the rescue of the Koreans. And those who are supposed to be more liberal, more peaceful are the ones who say, no, as long as Japan, you know, treats Yun Chi-ho, you know, civilly in prison, that's okay. And that's actually the narrative they go with. They say, well, Japan itself is learning how to become a better empire and their judicial system is also improving. So why don't we wait? And by 1915, um, missionary leaders in the U.S. are actually uh, in some ways patting themselves on the back saying like, okay, we were right. Like Japan actually turned out to be pretty progressive and it took three years, but they figured out how to handle this question. Um, and they actually don't, the Japanese uh, government doesn't exonerate you and they actually uh, get a pardon from the emperor. So, and Yun Shiho actually um, uh, is deeply, I think, changed by this experience and his, his, I think his cynicism and his uh, resentment towards it, the missionaries that really uh, get, get, get really exacerbated after this because he knows that these people are thinking about him as somebody who's unworthy of, of, of help. Uh, and um, this, is, this is all, you know, sort of, a, I think, getting, you know, getting me to the point that I make in this chapter, which is that it's so simple, I think. I mean, sometimes it's too simplistic to say, all right, missionaries, which side were they on? Japanese or Koreans? Racist, not racist. Imperialist, not racist, not, you know, anti-colonialist. But, but if you actually look into the missionary archives, you see a much more nuanced and quite frankly, very messy uh, process because they're trying to figure out what their response is because their number one goal is to make sure their converts are well-treated. but. On the other hand, um, they do not want to inter inter interfere with imperial uh, relations between United States and Japan or really imperial relations anywhere um, because empire has served them well. So as long as Japan is allowing the American missionaries to do their work in, the colon colonial, in colonial Korea, American missionaries are okay. And this is also the case in Korea. And I, I, I use this sort of long history as in some ways as a prelude, but also as just like a, as a way to better understand why we see uh, missionaries uh, during the March 1st movement in 1919 act the way they do. It is certainly true that missionaries play an extremely important role in exposing the colonial violence in Korea when Japan, uh, or more specifically Japanese colonial government um, uses violence to uh, suppress anti-colonial movement. And, and missionaries play probably the most important role, one of the two, yeah. um, the other being journalists. But what they're actually asking for is not the end of Japanese rule. They're asking for further reformation of Japanese colonial rule to make it less violent and more civil. And, and in an interesting way, well, the Japanese imperialists do deliver. And anybody who's written, has, has done orals in Korean history knows or even East Asian history knows, Japanese imperialism does change in 1920 to, from military rule to cultural rule. Mm -hmm. So the missionaries actually feel like, okay, like it's going well, like everything's going fine. And this is actually the, in some ways a context for the cover too, the cover of the book. Because by the time we get to the mid 1920s, it seems like all sides seem, or at least both missionaries and Japanese colonial government seem pretty okay with each other. And some converts like Yinshio are doing his part in, giving the semblance and everything's great. You know, he has a lot of resentment, but it is certainly much more peaceful than it was in the 1910s. So that's actually what I try to uh, sort of explain in this chapter about why we need to actually really think carefully about uh, the missionary worldview of the world, missionary view of the race, and not get tempted to 
just say, well, missionaries were imperialists, that of course they would be looked down on Koreans, or of course missionaries were on the side of the Koreans against the Japanese, so of course they were anti-colonial. I mean, there's truth to both sides of this, but I think more important is the, the, the process in which that these missionaries as intellectuals, as politicians are trying to grapple with what does it mean for us to collaborate with Jap Japan as the United States, as American missionary enterprise is expanding into Asia. Um, and that's, that's, that's the, one of the most important uh, aspects of this chapter uh, that I think, um, that I think, uh, that I hope that the scholars of religion will find uh, interesting and, and something that can uh, they can latch onto. Yeah. Well, thank you for that um, thorough response, uh, Professor So, in enlightening us and helping us to revisit those complex situations. Um, it was very fascinating to. Uh, see um, the the roles, the different roles that missionaries play in, in the midst of this complexity. Um, in the fourth chapter of your book, um, which is titled, quote, Empires of Exclusion, the Abrogation of the Gentleman's Agreement 1919 to 1924, we delve back into the context of California, um, also previously focused in chapter two. But here we witness you know, active developments in Japanese exclusion that resulted in the restriction of Asian property rights and the cessation of Japanese immigration to the United States in 1924. Um, in the midst of these developments, we encounter an unexpected inv individual uh, by the name of V.S. McClatchy or Valentine Stewart McClatchy, whom I believe deserves more than just a passing mention. Uh, what caught my attention was how McClatchy, while downplaying his racist agenda and aspiration for white supremacy, played a significant role by not only, um, quote, presenting Japan as an exclusionary state that hypocritically demanded an open door for its immigrants abroad, end quote, but also by becoming an advocate for Koreans living under Japanese imperialism. So, Professor Sal, would you be willing to provide um, us with further insights into V.S. McClatchy, his involvement in, in Japanese exclusion, and how his actions actually aligned with the Korean independence movement? Yes, um, that's, that's a great question, and um, and and it feeds directly uh, from from chapter three in the sense that I mentioned that missionaries played you know, really important role in exposing the, the violence of Japanese colonialism. Uh, and the other people who did, who also played their role are journalists. And V.S. McClatchy, um, and in fact, his family still owns uh, many newspapers around the country. Um, and so I think the easiest way to kind of think about him is that he's actually a media mogul. So he's not, he's a journalist, but he's also uh, somebody who's deeply well connected uh, in politics um, and, and using his newspapers for various political purposes. And by great coincidence, V.S. McClatchy um, um, passes through Korea during the March 1st movement. And before he was in Korea, he was already um, he was already anti-Japanese, but he that had not been his focus. His focus actually had been rent like uh, reclamation, reclamation, uh, and he was very close uh, with various politicians in Sacramento. So he had he harbored anti-Japanese sentiments. But what really emboldened him to take the lead in uh, in, in 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 this well, what what I can consider the post-war one anti-Japanese immigration movement is that well. 
the most effective way to argue for excluding Japanese immigrants is directly challenging this long-established idea that Japan is a progressive empire akin to the United States. And he has found, in his opinion, the best story to expose a hole in the, that logic, which is the violence in Korea. And it's a great coincidence because, you know, he's a racist and he's literally, he's not that interested in Korea. He says that he went on this trip to, you know, Asia uh, because his uh, physician recommended that he take a break from his work. But he, when he comes back, literally when he lands in San Francisco, um, he, he is so eager to talk about Japanese violence uh, in Korea, which um, immediately catches the attention of Korean immigrant community. Um, and what ends up happening, ironically, is that this person who is a white supremacist ends up becoming one of the most important political allies of Korean Americans. And in a very surprising turn of events, I found a lot of letters uh, exchanged between him and Seungman Ri, who later becomes president of South Korea at the time, one of the most important uh, anti-colonial activists in North America. Um, basically trying to forge collaborative relationship uh, between a leader of anti-Japanese immigration movements and uh, various Korean nationalists in the North American diaspora. Now, what is interesting is that V.S. McClatchy is actually not that invested in Korea per se, but he finds the story of Korean struggle against Japanese imperialism extremely useful uh, for two things. One is that he's now really confident that Japanese immigrants need to be portrayed not just for this regular immigrants who are coming to the United States in search of opportunities, but actually as settler colonialists uh, who are part of Japan's uh, imperial ambition and that California is actually the Eastern end of the Japanese uh, empire. So he spreads this fear through his newspaper that if, Jap if the federal government does not prohibit Japanese immigration and abrogate the General's Agreement, that Japanese colonial settlers are going to turn California into the second Korea and subjugate white people the way that they're subjugating Korean. Now, it sounds just like conspiracy theory, but it actually works really well. Uh, and, and, and it really works well uh, in two ways. One is that he effectively uh, neutralizes the group of missionary lobbyists led by Sidney Gulick, who are trying extremely hard in Washington, D.C., to create um, pathways for Japanese immigrants to come to the United States more easily. Um, so he's basically able to take on this, what we can call the Japan missionary group uh, single-handedly and say, listen, you keep on saying that US, you know, in order for the missionary enterprise to succeed in Asia, we need good US-Japan relations. But I was just in Korea where Christian missionary, I mean, Christian converts are the ones who are getting killed. And I read those missionary reports. They agree with me. So why, you know, why are we doing this? So he's basically uh, neutralizing the power of uh, Sidney Kulik and others in Congress. The second way that uh, it's really important is that he is really good. He, as I mentioned, he's really politically well-connected. So while he himself has this newspaper, he's really good friends with various politicians, not only in Sacramento, but in Washington, D.C., and he's able to give them rhetorical ammunition to say, listen, if the Japanese immigrants or if Japanese embassy, or even what he calls pro-Japan US politicians say that like Japanese immigrants need to be protected here, 
just keep on bringing up the, the violence with which Japan has colonized Korea, because that's going to be really important and undermine that argument. And it works extremely effectively. And one of the people who champions Korean uh, the desire for self-determination in US Congress is a guy named James Phelan. And James Phelan is one of the most notorious racist U.S. senators in U.S. history, especially in California, who literally runs for uh, his re-election campaign, re in 1920 with the slogan, keep California white. So why is a guy whose slogan is keep California white championing Korean national independence? Because for him, he's like, you know, he's primarily interested, you know, concerned about immigration. So he doesn't care what happens on the other side of the Pacific. And, and he's fine. But, but you have this really interesting development where Korean Americans are like, quite frankly, excited that they have somebody who's who's giving them the political power and and usually the narrative goes like the missionaries in the united states helped create that's true but the really powerful ones in congress were actually all these really horrible racists now so that's the that's the first half of those this chapter, the second half, which is actually uh, what we might consider the street of immigration history that that actually challenges uh, really long held assumptions about why Japanese exclusion uh, came to be in 1924 is that the usual you know, uh, uh, explanation for that, which I think comes from pioneering works by Roger Daniels and Yuji Ichioka, which is that um, because of, uh, well, there are two things. One is that the Supreme Court for the first time in US history declares, explicitly declares that Japanese uh, immigrants are not ineligible for US citizenship because of uh, because they're not white. And that's the Ozawa uh, case. The second one is that Japanese uh, ambassador in Washington makes a mistake in writing this letter uh, to Congress saying that, hey, if Congress decides to abrogate the gentleman's agreement and pass uh, Japanese exclusion, um, then there's going to be quote unquote, you know, great consequences. Um, and those are those are those are you know true. But if you look at the congressional record, if you look at the papers of these um, politicians, and and sometimes I feel like my my watching a lot of uh, TV shows about politics has influenced this. You see the politicians dealing constantly, and one of the most fascinating things that happens is that. Even before the the, the U.S. Uh, sorry, the, the Japanese minister in Washington sends this letter, the Congress has already decided they're gonna they're gonna vote against for vote you know vote against Japanese immigration. That's already been said, but they now actually have an excuse to say it much more explicitly. And on the, in the days leading up to it, they say the same thing over and over again. These are people in Congress. Well before the Japanese minister in Washington sends this letter. Um, Albert Johnson has already made an argument for Japanese exclusion. And he actually says, well, turns out that Japan also, he uses the term verb exclude, excludes Chinese and Koreans from coming to Japan. So why can't the United States exclude the Japanese? Like that's just what they do. That's what empires do, empires of exclusion. That's, that's where the title comes from. And, what is, and he gets that directly from V.S. McClatchy, who when he was in Japan, reads the story about how Japan had deported very recently deported Chinese laborers. Uh, and he latches onto this one uh, ordinance, Imperial Ordinance of uh, uh, Imperial Ordinance number 352, to say, well, listen, like Japan has a mechanism of ex you know, excluding what they believe to be undesirable people. So why can't the United States do it? 
Now, there's a huge difference between how Japan restricts immigration and, and the United States immigration. The United States does this restriction in that Japan is actually doesn't have like a comprehensive national immigration law. It's actually more empowering like local provinces to kind of figure out like who's admissible and who's not. Um, and in the case of Koreans, they're already colonial subjects, so they're not actually immigrants. They're more like migrants from a colony in the way the Filipinos are. But they completely, the American congressmen, you know, they, and people in politicians, people, people in Congress completely ignore this difference. It doesn't matter. They take V.S. McClatchy's argument and they, they repeat it over and over and over and over and over again in congressional record. It's there every day. And you'll be surprised by how many people are convinced that Japan has no argument against U.S. desire to exclude Japanese immigrants precisely because of the existence of this uh ordinance in Japan. And this puts Japanese immigrants in a super interesting uh, situation because there's some people who are actually saying, well, no, like the comparison is actually completely flawed. That's not how Japan treats, you know, Asians. And in fact, if you go to Japan and this is what Kiyoshi Kawakami does, there are a lot of Chinese and there are a lot of Koreans. And in fact, uh, and this is really bad, but he says that as you have seen from the story of how, uh, Japanese mob violence, well, or rather in, in, the, in, the, in the wake of Kanto earthquake has resulted in mob violence against Korean and Chinese. There are a lot of Koreans and Chinese there. So if Japan did have an exclusion law, those migrants would not have been in their first place. So those who say that Japan has exclusion law is wrong, that's his mode of argument. A different group of Japanese Americans actually say, well, whatever is going on in Japan, that's Japan, right? We need to focus on America, right? And America is a, in a land of liberty, right? So they actually do this like super patriotic move and neither of them really work. But that's actually the, the really interesting uh, situation where Japanese Americans are uh, 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 pitted. And then there's one person who actually accidentally ends up helping V.S. McClatchy in this, in this debate and, and same thing with Albert Johnson and others, which is that there's a, professor of Japanese literature and culture at UC Berkeley named Yoshikuno. And he is what we might consider a true scholar who seems to think that he, he needs to be above politics, right? He's like a true intellectual. He's like really interested in studying history and all these things. And he says, well, Japan does exclude like at least restrict Chinese and Koreans. I understand they're not the same as the US, but there is this thing. And of course, what Vietnamese McClatchy does is like, see, there's a Japanese guy who admits that Japan excludes people in Japan. So we have a native informant and Kuno inadvertently ends up helping the white racists to do this. So, so this is a story that I bring out in chapter four. Uh, and this is a complicated story, but I, the reason why I brought up the, 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 the historiography that uh, is long established by the likes of uh, Roger Daniels and um, uh, Yuji Ichioka is that you know, the way we think about Japanese exclusion in 1924 is really about white supremacy. And that's true. Uh, but what's really important about the story that I tell about V.S. McClatchy is that some white supremacists are incredibly smart and they know how to appear race neutral, at least. And the way they do it is that instead of, for example, forging white solidarity with other races in Australia, South Africa, he's going to champion Koreans and say, see, like, I'm not a racist. I I I I I do care about some Asian people, and 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 not to be so presentist. You see some of that happening right now. You have a lot of politicians, 
who are deeply racist, who are, who are championing Taiwan, um, even going to Taiwan. I'm not going to name them, but people can probably look it up. Um, and this is this is an interesting way in which that uh, the different interests converge and is a complicated way of thinking about U.S. political history and Asian American history and diplomatic history under one lens. Excellent. Thank you so much uh, for the detailed uh, response, Professor Sa. Um, in the following chapter, we have the opportunity to take a closer look into the Institute of Pacific Relations, also referred to as the IPR, an international non-governmental organization established to foster this trans-Pacific relations through engagement in social scientific research, particularly in the aftermath of the Japanese exclusion. Um, throughout this chapter, you provide a comprehensive overview of the IPR's inception, early controversies such as, you know, the quote-unquote natural right of immigration, and IPR's entanglement in the Manchurian crisis of 1931 to 1933, which led to Japan's withdrawal from the League of Nations in 1933, and also its subsequent exit from the IPR in 1936. Um, However, I would like to draw your attention to a figure named Nasu Shiroshi um, and the land utilization survey project conducted by the IPR. Um, this project, regarded as one of the IPR's most substantial and costly endeavors, emerged in response to Japan's concerns about overpopulation and food shortages. And in this chapter specifically, you talk, uh, you spend a lot of ink on, on this issue. Um, Professor So, could you shed light on this project, especially on Nasushiroshi's views and the backlash um, that it generated as well? Yes, so I chose to um, make Nasu a central figure uh, in chapter five, uh, the chapter that actually really looks at US-Pacific relations in the aftermath of Japanese exclusion, because um, I think that he represents at least three things. First is that, so he's a he's an agricultural economist uh, who teaches in University of Tokyo uh, at this time. And he is somebody who really believes in the power of ideas and state policies to address problems of what he calls, what he considers social problems. And he thinks that when um, the United States closes the door on Japanese immigrants, the story's not over. Japan, what is quote unquote surplus population, needs to find a different solution. And there are some people in Japan at the time say, okay, well, they'll send Japan, Japanese people to other places like Brazil uh, and Manchuria. But Nasu basically thinks that, okay, like that's actually going to cause problems because they're not going into neutral spaces. They're going to be there in many ways as settler colonialists, especially in places like Manchuria. So uh, what he offers instead is like, okay, why don't we really think about how to use our mental energy and use really what I learned during my time at Columbia, during my time uh, as, um, as a consultant uh, at the League of Nations Labor Office to think about using the, the latest agricultural science and economics to solve this problem. And what it proposes is that let's invest in projects that would increase the uh, productivity of of Japanese soil so that Japan would be able to support the large number of quote-unquote surplus population without placing them elsewhere. Um, so, so, and which brings me to the second reason why it's so important. This project that he proposes has great appeal among 
progressives and liberals across the Pacific, precisely because he's in effect saying that, okay, Japan can live with Japanese exclusion and, 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 and the peaceful relationship between US Japan and a peaceful relationship between Japan and other countries can exist if we, and I'm gonna use the we here, the IPR can invest in the project and that's why they spend so much money giving him uh, this project. And, and this would be great for everybody. It will be great for Japan, but it will also be great for the United States because, well, the United States will not have to worry about whether uh, um, uh, you know, ending Japanese immigration is going to cause war. Uh, and, they, and a lot of people think that war is gonna be caused by people migrating uh, in large numbers uh, and causing conflict. The third part, the reason why he's important, and this is more historiographical rather than historical, uh, is that uh, he represents, in my opinion, uh, the epitome of what we might consider, like what we call the Pacific Crossing. So there's a really, really famous book called The Atlantic Crossings, uh, written by uh, a scholar, uh, historian, distinguished historian, um, Daniel Rogers, uh, who looked at the exchanges of ideas about social politics and North Atlantic uh, during the progressive era. And that book was published in the late 90s. And quite frankly, there hasn't been a lot of works on progressivism, especially in transnational, transnational context uh, since then. And um, Nasu Shiroshi and IPR and, and his interlocutors, and some of whom are American, some of whom are Chinese, some of them are Korean, um, really represents this, uh, I think, um, group in a period where a lot of people, a lot of intellectuals who uh, have, and I'll call them technocrats too, they have, they have faith that the human race has the capacity to solve problems if they can really, you know, share ideas about what would be good. So in some ways that, you know, I'm, what I'm showing is that the progressive era ideas about empire, you know, which has really largely focused on like uplifting people uh, in the first two decades, by the time we get to the 1920s has kind of, you know, there is still an element to that too, um, but it's changing a little bit to kind of think about, okay, how do the great powers like the United States and Japan remain peaceful um, while, uh, you know, while still being empires. So one of them is to share ideas about how to like uh, increase the productivity of soil and, and, and also figure out how to uh, maintain relationship without sending immigrants to each other, United States uh, says. And, and so he, he is in some ways a symbol of the IPR's vision uh, after 1924. And as a symbol, he also basically uh, uh, falls from grace by the time we get to the Manchurian crisis during the Great Depression, because he changes the opinion 180 degrees during the Great Depression. He, he basically, a lot of people thought that this would work, but it would only under work when the economy is actually not in disarray. So Nasu Shiroshi, in an interesting turn of events, and I think I gestured towards the end of the chapter, he actually becomes the leading proponent of sending Japanese surplus population to Manchuria uh, because he thinks that, uh, that, that his project is not going to solve the problem early enough and ends up becoming, in some ways, uh, a much more aggressive imperialist, the kind, exact the kind of imperialist that American liberals are not fond of by the time it gets to the 1930s. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is so interesting to hear more about the significant roles Nasu Shiroshi and IPR played. Um, stepping into the sixth 
chapter, um, which is the final chapter of your book, um, we are introduced to various factors that led to the collapse of the inter-imperial collaborative governance of the United States and Japan amid the Great Depression. Um, some momentous changes we learn about during this period were the U.S. government to set the timeline for the Philippines' independence and to consider how it's statehood. Um, one particular change that stands out was the notable shift in the U.S. perception of China, ultimately leading the U.S. to distance itself from Japan and align with China during the Sino-Japanese War. Um, within this context, um, you mentioned the influential role played by the children of American missionaries in shaping the American view of China. I'd be interested to hear more about their impacts and how their views might be similar or different from their parents. Um, I'm asking this question particularly um, considering the ongoing discussions around the identities of missionaries and their children, such as David Hollinger's work like protesting abroad. Um, and also thinking about missionaries' responses in Korea who adopted the popular American idea about quote-unquote race development as we discussed in chapter three. Um, it would be interesting to compare these two different actions or reactions. Yeah, um, and thank you so much for um, the articulating the question that way because uh, it's pretty obvious it does, for those people who have read Hollinger's book, it's pretty obvious that I build on his work because uh, there are many things that make the Great Depression era different from the first three decades of 20th century that I covered in the first five chapters of the book. One obviously is about economics um, and, and economic considerations being really important in the way that, for example, the United States decides to set the timeline for decolonization of the Philippines. But also important is this period where um, the allure of Japanese empire really, 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 really begins to fade. So as I mentioned earlier in chapter three and four, missionaries in Korea already kind of you know, question the violence of, you know, with which Japanese imperialists rule Korea. V.S. McClatchy has done a lot of damage to Japan's reputation as an imperial power. Um, by the time we get to the 30s, we actually have, in some ways, a different generation of missionaries. So a lot of people that I talk about in this uh, chapter are actually younger. And these are, some are still missionaries, some are children of missionaries. So Pearl Buck, is one of them obviously Henry Luce uh, is another one, um, but also you know what what really you know captured my attention were the Fitches. I think it's uh, Geraldine Fitch and um, George Fitch. Uh, there are a couple who were um, uh, missionary leaders in uh, YMC and more specifically in Nanjing. And what happens is that you know after basically the perception of Japan as a progressive empire has already taken a negative turn. The missionaries, especially those who are interested in China, uh, take really important place in US politics. Uh, if people like Henry Luce are publishing um, very positive images of China as an as a, as a emerging modern uh, state uh, led by Chiang Kai-shek, and uh, Mei Ling Sung, um, you have the Fitches who are very invested in exploiting, uh, well, I'll, I'll use the word exploiting, exploiting, exploiting this, uh, this time to A, um, gain more sympathy towards China, but also maybe um, 
distant, created more division between the US and Japan. And this is really well encapsulated by uh, this moment when at the very beginning of the Sino-Japanese War, um, uh, actually, maybe not the very the beginning, the first year of Sino-Japanese War, um, during what is usually known as the quote-unquote rape of Nanking, so the massive massacre of civilians, especially women, including women and children in, in Nanjing by Japanese uh, Imperial Army. Um, George Fitch is actually the, uh, the YMCA head there, and he films the, the atrocity, and he sends this film not only to Henry Luce, but to more report to his wife who is part of uh, this organization called the American Committee for Non-Participation in Japanese Aggression. It's a very clunky name, but basically what you can think about is that it's an organization that is trying to convince the United States government and the American public to stop supporting Japanese war efforts. And she goes to Congress and she's very articulate. She's able to use all these news of violence to basically say, listen, uh, it's, it's, it's already bad that Japan is doing this in China, but it's even worse that the United States, uh, and more specifically, the oil companies, you know, iron companies and banks are profiting from this war because so much of Japan's war material actually is, comes from the United States. So this organization, which is often called uh, the, 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 the Price Committee, because they're, they're actually uh, named, uh, led by two China-born American brothers, Frank and Harry Price, uh, they're, they're mostly led by missionaries or missionary children, uh, and, and they have a really big impact in the way that they convince politicians and American public to think about why maybe this little empire is something that should be left behind. Now, that being said, and as I detail uh, in chapter six, um, they have opposition too. There are people still in the State Department and in Congress who are still lured by Japanese empire. Um, and they're really prominent people. And just to give examples, uh, one is um, um, J.V.A. McMurray, who is uh, not a household name anymore, but during the early Cold War, thanks to George F. Kennan, was actually seen as a great strategist. Uh, and he, was a, he, he basically continued to believe that Japan was a great imperial partner. Um, so did, um, in Congress, Burton K. Wheeler. And that's Again, no longer a household name, but during his lifetime, he was extremely famous. And he's most famous for being the inspiration for the protagonist in that uh, movie, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Uh, and Bernie K. Wheeler is supposed to be this true progressive uh, politician who is anti-corruption. But he actually basically says, listen, like, the United States actually has a lot to lose uh, if the United States stops uh, its relationship with Japan. So why support China? And he has this incredibly... Um, you know, interesting line that is both demeaning of the Chinese, but also uh, showing kind of concern about uh, African-Americans in the South. So he basically says, listen, uh, China, Japan is actually the biggest, uh, one of the biggest consumers of Southern cotton. Um, and if the United States stops its relationship with Japan, the people who are going to suffer are the Black people in the South. So why should the United States care about, for example, the Chinese people over the black people in the South. And, 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 and it's actually an effective argument and, and, and it works pretty well. And it's not until really 1939, 1940 that the Price Committee and people like the Fitches and the missionaries basically emerge victorious. And by the time we get to Pearl Harbor, 
um, and as well as like Japan's attack and you know Philippines and other places in the Pacific, um, it's pretty clear that the Memories and the Burton Gate Wheelers uh, and William Castle, who I also mentioned in the um, uh, in the book, they're basically um, in the minority, and that's when really the, the I think the allure of Japanese empire has died, and it's also not a coincidence that the allure of American empire has kind of died, uh, at least in its in in, in in the way they used to be during the progressive era, because Americans are not that interested in, for example. Uh, you know, uplifting the Filipinos by building schools. They're much more interested in, for example, uh, making sure that uh, Filipinos fight alongside with Americans to defeat the Jap Japanese, which is what happens in World War II. So that's actually sort of the uh, trajectory that 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 I, I, I sketch out in this book, especially in this chapter. And and as, as you pointed out, Chani, um, the, the missionaries and missionary children actually do play a much bigger prominent role by the end of this book, uh, precisely because I think that um, it's a generational shift, but also I think the China missionaries end up becoming much more prominent by the 30s than in ways they had not been in 1900s and 1920s. And I'll just give one last example. Sidney Gulick is basically uh, no longer uh, an influential figure in Washington, D.C. by the time we get to 1930s, which I don't think people could have predicted in the 1910s or the 20s. He was probably the most famous missionary interested in not just Japanese, but like Asian American issues. By this time, he's really obscure. Um, and I think that says a lot about also the changes within the missionary community. Um, and this is also when you have different generations of Korean missionaries in Korea, like McCune and others uh, emerge more prominently as well. A quick follow-up question, uh, Professor Sal, regarding the final chapter and even the epilogue is your return to the two figures that we discussed in our introductory question. You remember Du Bois and Yun Chiu. Um, and here, since this is just a follow-up question, would you just briefly mention their responses to this collapse of the U.S.-Japanese relations and, you know, what remains of their legacy today? Yeah, um, thank you so much for that question. And, and in, in some ways, it's revisiting uh, what Chani has asked about, about um, you know, how, the, how does the, this dual vision of race, dual understanding of race change over time? And by the time we get to uh, World War II, that imperial um, paradigm of race is really, really secondary to the color line. And if for Du Bois, his views have remained pretty consistent from all the way from 1905 to let's say 1942, when he's still championing Japan uh, as, as, as a champion of Japanese races. For Yun Shi Ho, it actually, uh, shifts so he as i mentioned he was more ambivalent and he definitely wanted to look at things not just through the color line but also through the imperial paradigm of race uh and by the time we get to 1941 he said he actually says it in an incredibly dramatic way like and he says it in response to japan's bombing of pearl harbor this this war is the greatest war of humankind this is the war that will end white supremacy and that's really interesting because um and i think that maybe he's also come to realize as the imperial paradigm of race has really have, has really disappeared or at least has lost its um allure i'll just say that um and what is interesting about both of them is that when they make these arguments uh they actually also engage in you can call them rewriting of history or just a selective uh, remembrance of the past because 
neither of them want to really talk about the fact that at least it, until 1924, until Japanese exclusion, uh, you know, U.S.-Japan relations was very, very durable. I mean, it was working quite well, even though there were conflicts over immigration, over even though there were conflicts over East Asia, there was no question that Japan was an ally. Um, and that history, uh, the, both of them actually want to just kind of, you know, cut out and then basically uh, say, all right, you know, whatever is the past, <laughs> the present is, present says that we need to fight suprem white supremacy. So that's where we're going to go from here. Um, and it's an interesting, uh, you know, way to think about, you know, the world they live in at the moment, because I think their actions in World War II did, you know, shape their legacy. Um, for Du Bois, you know, if he eventually comes to embrace China, especially communist China under Mao. Um, and he eventually also got to distance himself from Japan. Um, but quite frankly, his defense of Japan uh, at best looks very naive. At worst looks like he's just kind of condoning things, you know, the violence. I mean, as I mentioned earlier about chapter six, like the Fitches and others are like exposing the violence and nobody's doubting the violence, right? And, and, and that's happening during the Sino-Japanese War. Um, but Du Bois is basically saying, well, you know, you know, I mean, he's kind of glossing over that part for, for, for what he thinks is a greater purpose, which is to combating white supremacy. So there is still, in my opinion, even though Du Bois is obviously a very influential figure to this day, that conflicting legacy uh, that that is there uh, for him. As for Yun Shi Ho, um, because of what he does during World War II, aligning so, set himself so tightly with the agenda of Japanese imperialism, um, that's why so many people did not write about him, uh, write refused to talk about him uh, in the final years of his life, except as a you know traitor, a national traitor, basically. And even when he is talked about, there's a reason why most people talk about him as a reformer in the late 19th century, um, or you know, conversely, just only focusing on World War II and don't talk about what happened in the middle, which is my book, right? Uh, and and I said earlier that um, one of the things I wanted to not do is draw a straight line from the Russo-Japanese War to World War II. So in other words, don't draw a straight line from my chapter one to where John Dower's book begins. Um, I, you know, I, and, and I think that there's something that I really want um, people to take away from this, that like, this sounds so obvious, but like, you know, you can't just trust our historical figures to tell us what happened, right? We have to really look at what they did over a period of time and all of them are imperfect, but they're all so very fascinating figures to study and they help us understand, I think with nuance, uh, what exactly this period was like. Um, yeah, thinking about your legacy, um, I see how important your contributions are. Um, so as we near the end of the, our interview, um, there are two remaining questions. Actually, I have more questions, but um, yeah, two main questions I would like to ask you. Um, what are the key takeaways that you hope scholars and students in Asian American history, particularly those focusing on trans-Pacific history, will gain from your book? And in what ways do you think your book paves the way for new research opportunities and exploration in this field? Yeah, thank you for that. And um, I would say that I am, I am uh, you know, building on the works 
that that quite frankly have already paved the way for me and i hope that other people will also continue to think about my book even if they disagree with some of my arguments or most of the arguments that they would find it useful in thinking about uh uh you know their subjects so there are really two things that i want people to take away from this book uh beyond just like the facts and the arguments um one is that i i would like to see more scholars, especially maybe senior scholars who already have established their, uh, you know, their stature and maybe already have tenure to take on projects that will embrace the ambivalence of historical subjects rather than the ones that seem to be inspirational or the ones that seem like we're denouncing what happened in the past. I say this because um, writing this book, you know, I, you know, I'll have to admit, you know, the book is ambitious in various different ways. One is that it covers a lot of stuff, but it's also ambitious in that I really didn't want to write a book that uh, um, that is about inspiring people to follow the lead of, of the people that I write about. In other words, I spent a great deal of time writing, reading about Yun Chi Ho and W.B. Du Bois. But I, I would prefer that people come up with their own ideas about thinking about race than just saying, well, I'm going to follow the Yun Chi Ho way or Du Boisian way. Because we already have a ton of books on Du Boisian way of thinking about race. And I think one of the downsides of sometimes feeling like we're writing about heroes is that we lose the complexity of life um and 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 not all not all not all stories are of heroes or villains and and i actually wrote a book in some ways that has no heroes um they're definitely terrible villains like vs mcclatchy is a terrible person there's no question about that um but some villains are more complex than others um and in that sense, in terms of thinking about if we have the if we have the opportunity to write books and write stories, I, I would prefer that we we take on projects or actually you know that that are uncomfortable in some ways. And 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 I'm not going to list them, but even you know when I go through the archives, there are a lot of historical subjects that are supposed to be heroes. That when you start reading their letters, you're like, maybe this person is actually not as great as I thought they were, right? I mean, that's what happened with me and Du Bois. I mean, Du Bois is, was, again, I, you know, I have nothing but respect for him in a lot of ways. He's been a great interlocutor for me, but you know, he, he had problematic views and Yun Chiu definitely had problematic views. Um, so that's that's one thing. Uh, the, other, the other second important thing and this is actually where I'm, I'm really following the path of certain historians and I'll name especially uh, two sort of, I guess, senior scholars and two, well, one mid-career and one junior scholar. Uh, so it's two senior scholars that, you know, that I'm thinking of are Ichiro Azuma and, and Madeline Shu. And, and, and they really, I think, changed Asian American studies uh, for the better precisely by engaging so deeply, not only with, uh, non-English language sources, which is just really, really important, but also like historiography of uh, uh, fields outside Asia. This sounds so obvious in some ways to, for example, study Korea and Japan and China. If you want to study US-Japan relations, US-China relations, US-Korea relations, Korean-American history, Chinese-American history, Japanese-American history. But if you go to the library and go look at the Asian-American history section, Asian-American study section, the vast majority of them are going to be still focused on really uh, the continents, what's happening in the continental United States. And more importantly, um, 
there's not a lot of engagement with works in Asian history. And, and I want to say that even if, let's say, scholars don't have the language skills, I think they can definitely read the secondary sources, primarily to just think about how, I don't know, an Americanist way of thinking about race is only just one way of thinking about race. There are other ways of thinking about race. Uh, there are other ways of thinking about empire. Again, this sounds really obvious, but it's not being done. And that's actually what I try to do in this book. And, and, and um, you know, I'll be very gratified if, if Asianists read my book and start reading more Asian American history books as well. Um, and, and those are senior scholars in terms of, you know, I'll call them mid-career and, and junior scholars. So, you know, Jane Hong, uh, who wrote this excellent book called uh, Opening the Gates to uh, Asia, um, I think, in my opinion, did an excellent job of really bringing big P power politics, uh, big P politics to the center of writing Asian American history too, because so much of the historiography, let's, uh, I'll be honest, uh, and rightfully so, I mean, understandably so, has focused on history from the ground up, labor organizations, laborers, um, and that's that's because of the origin of the field is Asian American studies, uh, grassroots origins. I get that, but there's, I think, a lot of opportunities for people to read how, I mean, what's literally happening in Washington. And, and, and I was so surprised by how much I found just by looking at papers of politicians or even congressional record or even fruits that, that weren't supposed to be there in, in the books that I read. And finally, and, and you, know, I, you know, because uh, you, know, you, you also interviewed her, but you know, because she has been a great interlocutor for me at Emory, Helen Jin Kim, um, who wrote another excellent book, um, Race for Revival, which she approaches a different, you know, angle because she teaches in theology, I teach in history, uh, she, you know, her, her, she is a historian of religion, I am not a historian of religion by training. Um, but one of the things that she taught me is also like, the, the, in some ways, I mean, this also sounds really obvious, but uh, when you study religion or even race, uh, I think the default mode of Asian American history has been looking at, for example, youth movements, organizers, but look, let's look at also students and intellectuals too. Um, because one of the things that I was super excited to read in her work even before her book came out was like, you know, the, these Asian Koreans and Korean national students, they have their own ideology and theology. I mean, you know, and, and of course they're in conversation. And, and, and I mentioned, you know, Shiro, you know, Nasu earlier, but Yun Chiyo also, like these are intellectuals, right? And what's interesting in Asian studies, nobody's going to question that there is intellectual history of Asians. But in Asian American history, there's really not that much in terms of, if you think about like, what is Asian American intellectual history? And I think an obvious place to start is actually looking at some of these people who were part of the missionary enterprise because, well, they had to think about theology. They have to be intellectuals. It was their job. Um, and they're thinking constantly about what it means to be Asian in this world, in this multiracial world. So I, I want to sort of do that, uh, uh, sort, of, sort of mention that and, 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 you know, so on one hand, I'm, I'm continuing what people have done, but on the other hand, I want to really highlight different ways that people could take this field uh, further. Well, thank you, um, Professor So, for those words of challenge, inspiration, and also recognition. Um, in concluding today's interview, the one final question we would like to ask you today is that, um, do you mind sharing with us your current and future projects and what you hope to work on as well? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I'm currently working on an article that 
I hope will be part of a second book project. Um, and the article is focusing on a group of Korean Americans who would have hated everybody who appears in my first book. So these are the Korean American radicals who uh, were based in LA. They were not allured by empire at all. Uh, they, a lot of them were communists. Some of them were communist sympathizers. And what is interesting about this group is that they, almost all of them served in World War II, uh, in the U.S. military during World War II, and then some of them even served in the U.S. military during U.S. occupation period in South Korea. And then later on, they become radical, uh, you know, critiques of imperialism. And one of them, named Peter Hyun, uh, actually even collaborates with WDB Du Bois on anti-war campaigns during uh, the Korean War. And I was super surprised. And I found this in the Du Bois papers that there's this random Korean guy that he's corresponding with, right, in the late 40s and 50s. And this is how I usually operate. I find stories that seem like, I don't know what's going on. Um, and I'm using the story of these group of people to kind of think about how um, Asian Americans and other, you know, Americans who are, you know, in this position of, being experts of Asia are leveraging their expert status to kind of uh, encourage different kinds of social movements. So if this article is really focused on anti-war movement, uh, I'm also thinking about, um, you know, sort of revising my article on pro book and feminism to kind of think about how she used her position as, a, as the China expert during the Sino-Japanese war, not just to, uh, you know, support China in, in this war, but also to push uh, the National Women's Party to be more aggressive in uh, getting popular support for the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, and I'm also working on uh, a related chapter uh, currently, although that's not as uh, um, well formulated, but and, and I wanna end this, end this talk with this particular um, uh, talk because I said that I, I want to see more people have take more chances with ambivalent stories but I have a story about uh, of um, a very famous uh, Japanese American communist um, why am I blanking on his name again and um, Carl Yoneta is his name and he's very well known precisely because he wrote in a biography and he has a, he donated a huge collection to uh to UCLA archives um, as this radical person. But what's also interesting about him is that he is constantly thinking about uh, the ways in which the younger generation um, of Asian Americans who have not perhaps lived in Japan, have not experienced World War II, do not really know what it means to be cosmopolitan. So he's very critical and he's using his experience living in Japan, working in Japan to not only call for better US-Japan relations, but also to criticize uh, earlier generation, uh, later generation of Asian Americans um, to kind of uh, respect the elder, elderly view of, 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 uh, of, of the world. And this, I think, is a, my entry point into kind of thinking about uh, the generational difference between what we usually know as the Asian American movement generation of college students in the 1670s mm. and the slightly earlier generation of people that includes Buck, Peter Hyun, and, and uh, Carl Yonetta. Um, so that's where I'm going with this. It's obviously going to take another couple of years for me to figure this out, but thank you for asking me that question. And yeah. And yeah. Thank you, uh, Professor. So those, uh, so those sound like exciting projects and we look forward to reading more of your works. And once again, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah. Thank you so much. 
Um, and thank you everyone for listening to today's episode in which we explore the lure of empire, American encounters with Asians in the age of trans-Pacific expansion and exclusion, written by Chris Saw and published by Oxford University Press in 2023. This is your host, Byung-ho Choi. And Chani Ha. And please stay tuned for our next episode on new books in Asian American studies. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.